Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn lead to the renaming of periods into ages. You personally just lived through an experience called the Information Age, and what a ride it has been. Now consider that you may be right now living through a transitioning period into a new age, the Age of Infinite. An age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by a redefining lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources, which we made possible through a new construct where the moon and the earth, as we call it mirth, will create a new ecosystem and a new economic system that will transition us into the infinite future. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that will come to life in your lifetime. The podcast is brought to you by the Project Moonhot Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, H-U-T, we were named by NASA, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use the innovations, the paradigm shifting, and the endeavors to turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we're going to be covering another great topic, reframing priorities to accelerate the space ecosystem. And today we have us have with us Val Munsami. How are you doing, Val? I'm doing great, David, and quite looking forward to this conversation. So am I. Uh, Val has a great historical background in terms of what he's done. He's right now the CEO of the South African National Space Agency. He has a PhD in physics from the University of Natal, a master's in business leadership from the University of South Africa. Uh, he's been to the International Space University, and he also has a certificate in international airspace and telecommunications law from the University of Pretoria. That's a lot, Val. You've done a, you've been studying a lot at least. Okay, so let's one thing that has come up recently that I've now added to all the podcasts is this. Individuals have asked me, how did these podcasts operate? Or do you know the information in advance? This is how a podcast works. It's a small but very valuable added piece. First, a guest is selected. Val was selected. Second, the guest watches the two videos are on the Project Moonhot website in the top right-hand corner, number one and three. Third, we have a call. And during that call, I ask Val, what would he teach me? And then we work to find what that topic is. I looked it up. Val and I spoke for two hours and 28 minutes on our first call just to decide the title. And then last, what we do, or not last, but fourth, is they, the individual then goes out. They work on their content. I don't hear about it. I don't see it. I don't have any knowledge of what they're going to be covering, and then they come back, and we have the program. So right in front of me now, I have about 12 blank pieces of paper, and just like you, we're looking to learn from Val. So let's get started. Val, do you have some bullet points for us that we're going to be following? Yeah, no, thanks, David. Um, so, so the topic, as we'd agreed, was uh, reframing priorities to accelerate space ecosystems. So in the running order of the narrative that I want to put forward. I just wanted to give you a sense of my own personal journey because I think it's quite important to give okay. you a sense as to how different elements of my own experience kind of come together in the end, which brings some, I think, some unique insights into the space ecosystems. Which so so, so just some, number one is personal journey. Yes. Okay. What's number two? So number two is the, the you know, 
Uh, okay, let me just put the title out. It's strategic planning, essentially. Strategic. Um, okay. So Str a lot of us go through strategic planning, but I wanted to just contextualize that. Okay, number, number three. three is the ecosystems approach. And I want to draw from ecosystems. These are natural systems, which are yeah. in nature. And I'll draw specific characteristics, which I think are very unique and important for organizations today. Yeah. And then I want to drill down specifically into what what I refer to as the space ecosystem. And then that's the fourth element. And the yep. fourth element is how do you transform your space ecosystems? Um, so that's the, the, the fifth and last element in terms of the outline. It's interesting while you're, you said it in the beginning, when I type this title, I don't remember us saying space ecosystems, which was interesting. You added the S and you added it again. So I'm, I'm interested to hear how you've made that transition because it was space ecosystem when we first did it. So this is great. So let's yeah. start number one. Let's start with number one. What's your personal journey? Yeah. So I started off, you know, uh, very narrowly focusing on, on the science aspect. So, you know, I went through and got my PhD in physics, essentially, but I started off in solid state physics, but then migration to space physics later on. So that was my essential stepping stone into the career world. But then as I started to get into the, uh, in the science aspects of it, I then moved on uh, and I sort of joined the Department of Trade and Industry and looked at it from a regulatory perspective. So I was working in a section for the non-proliferation of the weapons of mass destruction. So you talk oh, wow. about dual use technology. <laughs> uh, yeah, dual use technologies, how do you limit you know, the access to dual use technologies, especially when there's security concerns around that. And so I dealt with the, the space elements and then also the nuclear um, delivery systems and, and so on. So how do we control all of that? So I worked in that sort of regulatory environment. And then I left and I joined uh, an institution called the National Research Foundation. Before you get there, I'd like yeah. to jump back for one second. Sure. I, and I, I never thought about this until some of the work that we're doing inside of Project Moonha is hmm. you, just, you were in physics and then you focused on space physics. What does space yes. physics mean? <clears throat> So there's different elements to space physics. Um, so I specifically focused on what is called magnetospheric physics. So if I can give you a quick run through. Yeah, please. Looks like. yeah, okay. So the sun is sort of a, like a nuclear furnace. So it's converting hydrogen to helium and there's a lot of energy that expelled. And so on a continuous basis, the sun is spewing out radiation and plasma. Okay. So radiation is the light that we see, but there's also sort of heat. And then the plasma is sort of ionized particles coming through from the sun. But the sun is also magnetized. So it's got a magnetic field. So when it's spewing out these uh, plasma, essentially, it's spewing out uh, charged particles, but also magnetic field remnants coming out of the, uh, the solar surface. Now, on a quiet day, when nothing is happening on the surface of the sun, the plasma is actually streaming out of the sun radially outwards at 400 kilometers per second. That's the sort of average speed. Okay. That's yep. 400 kilometers per second, which is quite energetic. Yeah. <laughs> here, now and again, you get these, okay, first of all, there's a number of cycles. You get the 11 year cycle, the, the sunspot cycle. So you have a number of um, sunspots and, and they go through, you know, 
highs and lows over 11 year cycle. Mm -hmm. But at the maximum, you get these um, coronal mass ejections where you get this massive intensity of plasma spewed out and they've come flying out and that can go up to 800 to 1000 kilometers per second. Okay. Now, an important aspect is all technology in earth is affected by this um, solar wind or the solar storm that's coming out from the sun. Okay. And just to give you a sense of how that happens, the only thing that's protecting us is the earth's magnetic field. So if you've done a bit of physics, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Maxwell's equation says yes. particles can't cross the magnetic field lines. They get trapped by the magnetic field lines. So what actually happens is the, these charged particles, they kind of get trapped in these radiation belts around the Earth. You might have come across the radiation belts. And then if you think of it, it's like a tail. If you've ever ha held a sling shot in your hand, and if you pull the sling and you're far enough and it snaps, that sling comes flying forward. And that's essentially what happens is you, you're pulling the magnetic field lines on the night side. So on the day side, it's sort of squashing the magnetic fields, uh, field lines. And then on the night side, it's pulling into a long sling like, and then it suddenly it snaps. And all of that energy that's packed into that magnetic field comes flying with that magnetic field lines towards the earth. And where does that radiation go? It goes into the polar ionosphere. This is how you get the auroras, by the way. Okay. Um, so the night sky gets lit up, so you have a greenish, pinkish hue. So when these charged particles come into the polar ionosphere, they hit the nitrogen and the oxygen atoms. So when they hit the nitrogen atoms, they kind of have a sort of a pinkish hue, pinkish color, sort of lights up. If it hits the oxygen atoms, you get the greenish sort of color. Now, effectively, what's happening is you bumping up the electrons in these uh, oxygen and nitrogen atoms to higher states. And when they come back to the ground state, they emit either light or energy. And the light that you see is that characteristic of oxygen and nitrogen. So, That's how you see the auroras. So your study, you decided out of all of these places, and the reason I'm bringing it up in my head is to know where you're coming from when you're talking is you decided not to go into, you and I have spoken about orbital mechanics. You no. decided to go into magnetospheric uh, physics, and that was because you thought it could what by knowing this? Right. So effectively, as I said, it affects all technology on Earth, but specifically from a space point of view, you cannot embark on a spacewalk or even launch um, a rocket during a maximum uh, solar storm because you have excessive radiation. Okay. Uh, up in the sort of upper atmospheres into the terrestrial solar uh, atmosphere mm -hmm. as well. So you cannot do a manned space flight or a space walk outside of the, let's say, the International Space Station when these events are happening. There's also uh, satellites that get damaged during these uh, solar events. So there's, uh, you know, you lose billions of dollars essentially because of damage to satellite. And it's a biggest insurance in industry that's looking at this as well. So you insure your satellites against specific damage. And by the way, on the 10th of December last year, we had one of our satellites re-enter called Sumandilasat. And it was actually damaged two or three years after it was launched because of a solar storm. So effectively, you've got charged particles that are interacting with the electronics inside of the satellite. And you know what happens. Yeah, it just fries. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. getting back to, so now I know you, you, you 
took this path, then you got involved with nonproliferation or doom. Uh, Must have been a nice conversation at the dinner table. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we're we're deciding how the world is going to fall apart. Then the security and nuclear regulatory. What happened after that? So after that, I joined what is called the National Research Foundation, and I was essentially responsible for international uh, agreements. So these are all the bilateral agreements signed by the Department of Science and Technology uh, with other countries at an intergovernmental level. Okay, And so there was quite a number of, I think we are dealing with about 30 different uh, international agreements, uh, about five or six on the African continent and the rest were abroad. And then I dealt with um, the International Council for Sciences. We had like about 35 or 36 different scientific areas. So we would have national committees like for food, uh, uh, you know, safety or brain uh, sciences or whatever the case may be, pharmaceuticals. So you'd have a committee on different scientific disciplines. And so we used to provide a secretary function to bring those different uh, focus areas um, in terms of how we could look at it strategically at the national level. And then I also dealt with multilaterals like the non-aligned movement and then there's also the atomic energy um, um, you know, corporation internationally. Um, so there was multilaterals, there was Africa bilateral. So I dealt with the international relations essentially. And after that, I then joined the Department of Science and Technology. And that's where I thought, I think where my career really kicked off on the space side because then I got really good insights in terms of developing strategies, policies at a, for a space sort of ecosystem, or let's say call it the National Space Program, including setting up the South African National Space Agency at that time and looking at the different regulatory instruments and so on. And then I kind of climbed up and then I became the Deputy Director General for Research, Development and Innovation and started to look at intellectual property, setting up a institute for it called the National Intellectual Property Management Office, a technology innovation agency. I think in the States, you call it the Valley of Death, we call it the innovation chasm here in mm-hmm. South Africa, uh, trying to go from R&D into the commercial domain and sometimes there's a gap that you have to bridge. Um, and then also including astronomy, like the biggest radio uh, program at the moment is called the Square Kilometer A and so on. And then I come into sense. Now, the reason I'm painting this personal journey, when I come into an agency function at the management, high level management level, I've got to engage with scientists. I've got to engage with the regulatory aspects of the business. I've got to be clued up with the international context I've got to be clued up with the policies, with the strategies. So all of what I've learned on my journey sort of gets folded quite nicely into an executive level position is where I am now as the head of the agency. So that continuous learning and different elements of what I've learned through the years actually gets packaged quite nicely. And I think because of that experience, I can look at ecosystems from very different perspectives. It's not a single track. I didn't stay on the scientific track uh, only. Uh, so I've, I can look at issues from international perspective, regulatory. And I think that kind of aspect is quite key in terms of how you unpack ecosystems. And uh, by the way, uh, you gave me a copy of your book to read, uh, Pay to Think. Oh, yeah, okay, yes. I, 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 when I was reading it, I said, wow, okay. And I did mention to you that I'm actually writing a book called Building Sustainable Space Ecosystems. Yep. And 
I started to put quite a few points down. And as I was reading your book, and I thought, well, you are essentially articulating the kind of things that I'm trying to articulate, but there's a, there's a whole host of complementarity in terms of what you put down in your book and how I saw it. And, and I thought, wow, this is amazing because now we're having the conversation today. I, I, uh, I love it. And it, it paid to think is a interconnectedness model of understanding of how we actually operate. So absolutely. what you're talking about when you use the term ecosystems, <clears throat> it's an interconnectedness that That's has it. to happen. And so I'm, I'm glad that there's some similarities in there because it makes it a lot easier to have the conversation when you understand those principles. So great. Great. So, so that's the, the first uh, aspect of the outline is my personal journey, just to put that in context and I can draw on those elements as we uh, go. No, I, I love it. And I actually, the, the thing what surprised me and I, I, let's not call it a surprise, but you, you look up somebody's history and in my case, I had to look it up to do this short introduction. And we only have one or two lines. That's all we put in the introduction. And I'm looking saying, wow, you know, even the law side, the, the masters in business leadership and, and the physics yeah. and all of those pieces show a, a perspective, a broader perspective than someone who just focuses on orbital mechanics or is a, a specialist in an area. So I yeah. do love that you have that uh, complete crossover across all of them. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, and, and just maybe one departure point, uh, David. I mean, pay to think again, right? Yeah. So your ability to make decisions is based on your experience. Mm -hmm. If your experience is limited, your ability to make decisions will also be limited. Um, yes. So when you're looking at a particular problem statement, you're going to look at it from your personal experience. And but if you have a diverse set of experiences, um, then that's going to you know, really be good for you in terms of how you articulate and kind of look at that problem statement from different lenses, essentially. So I think that's a very powerful aspect. Yeah. I think you're talking about the tool redefining. That's and it, yes. Redefining yeah. is so unbelievably powerful. Yeah. And, and you hit on two points. One, it, the challenge statement is very important and how much time. That's actually what you and I were working on when we were creating the title yeah. is yeah. if you could see there's now a similarity in there is what is the real challenge? What is the real challenge? We were kind of moving up that value chain. But the other one that I love that you brought up, which is fantastic because you, you do get it, is that organizations will often bring in a person who says, okay, let's, let's address this topic. And then everybody go out and learn something. And then come yeah. back. And I said, no, yeah. no, it's already too late. You have to have yeah. people at the table who, while you're having these discussions, have that breadth, knowledge, scope, uh, the vastness of whatever they're bringing to the table. So when the challenge comes up, they say, oh, wait, 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 Macedonia. 2015, yeah. we ran into that. Uh, no, 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 we, we, we had that in the Congo, but it was in, it was in agriculture. And we can cross-pollinate that idea to this. But yeah. if you're waiting for people to grow to them, that becomes a challenge. It, it becomes even more difficult. So picking your team, extremely yeah. important. And having that diversity that you have is, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. There is a podcast, by the way. I don't know if you know. I don't know if I shared this. If you no. look up Ot Meta, which is in Dubai, I did a, not a podcast, a, a TED Talk. And right. you can find it on ted.com, just David Goldsmith. 
or you can look up aut a u t m e t h meta m e t h a i think you can look it up and you can see there's a, a ted talk on redefining so that might be helpful to you also bro Great. Um, and just maybe to ease into this second aspect is the strategic planning. Um, and I was reminded uh, many years ago when I was having a conversation uh, when I was at the Department of Science and Technology with my director general. And we were talking about something and I said to him, you know, there are two people that come to work at this organization. One, people that are extremely passionate about what they do. There's a different element of cohort of people that come in just to collect a paycheck, essentially. Mm -hmm. okay. And you see this aspect sort of resonate inside of organizations as a collective. Now, what I've painted is individuals and how they get to get you know, into the organization. But when you look at organizations collectively, and it comes back to pay to think, executives, how do we look at the organization? There's two ways of how you actually approach, you know, in, in terms of the organizational challenge. One, you either play not to lose. So you can do the bare minimum that you have a clean audit, your finances are, you know, right up there. You kind of take your strategy year on year, you just bump it up a little bit. You just keep it going, essentially. There's another element, and which I think many, uh, there's probably fewer of these kinds of organizations where you're playing to win. There's a vast difference between playing not to lose mm -hmm. and playing to win. Yes. And I think pay to think is essentially what differentiates executives who actually are paid to think and executives who are just there to warm a seat. I'm smiling here. Uh, and I'm going to say this for a moment for anybody who's listening in. We don't have the video on. It's done intentionally, so you don't see the person. You don't see these reactions. So that's why I'm saying it. Val can't see me. I'm doing notes. He's doing his thing. So let's get back. So I'm smiling here because, yes, paid to think is about winning. And I even would say Project Moon Hut is because we cannot lose. We have to win. Mm. That's that's our entire that's our entire mantra. We yeah. see the six mega challenges coming. We see the challenges that we're facing in the future. We are not about science research and exploration. We are about creating the mirth economic system and ecosystem. And we even the word space. We don't use the word. We try to get away from that. We try to use the word space. We because space is a geography. It is, uh, space is not an industry, it's a geography. And so we're really talking about beyond earth. <clears throat> you just have to pick the geography in because we, we are planning on winning. So yes, I, I like that analogy. It was very good, the, the, not analogy, the comparison between losing and winning. Yeah. And I, I sort of looked at, you know, in your book, you talk about enterprise thinking and the four elements, strategizing, performing, forecasting, and learning, you know, at yep. the enterprise level. And that's essentially what we are paid to do, essentially. So, so when I looked at my experience in terms of, and, and by the way, I must uh, share this with you. When I joined the Department of Science and Technology, my supervisor was reporting to at the time, uh, one of my first job was to uh, sort of facilitate the development of a national space strategy. And 
I landed up on the first day and the first directive was, can we maybe find a group of consultants who can come in and help us to write the strategy? And my first response was, it's like, why did you employ me for, <laughs> yes. if this is my job, why do you want consultants to come in and, and do this? I'm not, I'm not understanding. And the response was, okay, so you think you can do it? It's like, it's worth a try. Uh, it's nothing worse than not trying. Um, <laughs> well, there is something you know, worse. If it means that, that like the world's going to fall apart because you didn't get the plan done on time, that yeah. would be worse. But you're saying, yeah, this is my job. You brought me in to design this. Let me play with this toy, this, this strategy. Yeah. Let, let me see what I could do. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And throw me in the deep end. And that's the only way I'm going to learn to swim. So I went to the... Uh, executive in the department at that time and was responsible for strategic planning for the organization. And my first question to him was, is there a methodology that you use in terms of developing strategies? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, I'm sorry, there's none. Go and figure it out yourself. Like, Oops, okay. <laughs> Carol. And I said, okay, that's, that was bad news for me. It's like, okay, this is not the end of the world. We, we're going to figure this out. So I, I think I mentioned to you, I started that position in the department uh, yeah. on the 1st of July, 2007. The strategy was completed by December, 2007 in six months. Okay. okay. And, the and that's good. It, Actually, I'm going to comment. That's good yeah. because no great, very few great plans happen overnight or in a two-day retreat. They take yeah. time to evolve. You have to, you have to be sitting at dinner. You have to be talking to people and say, I screwed up a week or two later. And most people who are creating plans where they say they didn't weekend, they thought about it for seven years. Yeah. And that weekend is when it came out of them, but it wasn't yeah. created in that weekend. Yeah. And by the way, I didn't realize back then and as I kind of learn now, and I, you know, look to, uh, you know, courses around like design thinking, for example, where you engage your customer base to figure out, you know, there's minimal viable products and there's agile, um, you know, sort of planning and so on, you know, in terms of how you develop the minimal products and share with your customer and you build on that. Back then, so the, the plan that I put together was say, Let's invite all of the government departments that are using um, space products and services. Let's put them in the room and let's ask them the question, if we had to set up a space program, what is it that you want us to deliver? So that was essentially taking a user requirements yeah. approach. Okay, say, how can we make this agency relevant to you as the end user? And I didn't realize it back then, but that was, really where this thing really started to shoot properly so i I'm, i've got it yeah. yeah who did you invite because well who did you invite first because i've got this huge smile on my face i gotta know what the how you did determine who uses beyond earth so how yeah. did you how did you how did you make this list <laughs> how was the wedding okay. list put together it was great because so what i did was i said okay the first thing, let's write a letter of invitation. We knew the number of government departments. I think at that time we had about 30 government departments. I think about 33. And um, so we wrote a, a letter from our director general to each and every 
other department or the director generals of each and every other department saying, this is our intention. We know that they, we, we knew at that point in time that many government departments had what is called GIS units, geographic information systems, okay? Where they were using geographic um, or geospatial information for planning, for developing policies and so on. So we invited from each of those departments a representative to come and sit and engage with us. So the director general had, in those departments um, had the leeway to choose who they wanted to be represented or, or represent the department. Um, so that's the approach I took. Well, I, the, the, okay, so the reason I ask it, which is, a, a, uh, I, I wanted to hear what your answer was first, is mm. right now we're using, we're recording this on Zoom. So therefore Zoom is using technology beyond Earth. Then right. firefighters, the outfits that they wear, the shielding came from yeah. beyond Earth. We have the, right. the, the glasses that I'm wearing, just the glasses I'm wearing are beyond Earth. The exercise equipment, baby food, freeze-dried food, solar panels, cordless drills. I, I, the list is endless. Yet most individuals, including myself when I got involved in this, don't know that they all come from ideas generated from beyond earth activity. Yeah. So Absolutely. my point was, how did you define, because you could theoretically said, farmer, you need us. Dental offices, you need us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Firefighters, come on board. You could have picked anybody. Exactly. Absolutely. But the, the, it kind of came back to how we framed the problem statement. Okay. Because it was... Uh, just because you're reading paid to think, I'm going to call it a challenge statement. So the yes. challenge statement. The, challenge. Well, the, the reason is, Val, and it's very simple. A yeah. problem is a, is a very negative. An opportunity is very positive. And a challenge statement is neutral. So if I walked up to you and said, I've got a problem. Oh, wow. But if I said to you, Val, I've got a challenge. Mentally in that one second, you say, oh, let me see if I can help you. A challenge yeah. is a neutral version of more of a, a forward-oriented thinking as compared to a problem. So you'll always hear me say, our team laughs at me, and they now do it too, is that uh, is because a, ch a challenge just sets a different mindset. So I'm going to kind of push you in that direction since you're reading. Sorry. Yeah. So, so let me tell you what the challenge back in the day was. Yeah. Um, we knew that government departments had those GIS units that were using geospatial information to make decisions, essentially. Now, here's the problem. Um, a government department would go to an international satellite vendor or satellite operator and said, I say, I need image imagery or satellite imagery over this particular area because I need to make policy level decisions on this area. Another government department would go to the same satellite operator and say, I need satellite images over this area. And very often what you'd find is multiple government departments going to the same satellite operator, asking for the same image over the same area. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it's a geography. It's a geography. Yeah. And we said, hang on, there's something wrong because we are government, we are one. We're not, we might be 33 different divisions, but we are one. So why should we be paying multiple times? And this is essentially when we set up the agency, how we pay for a multi-use, a single license, multi-user 
a single yeah it's uh, yeah, it's a single, single license with multi-user multi yes yeah so we buy the image once and it gets used across government the cost saving along those lines alone was significant oh uh, do you have any number because it would be unbelievably significant based on a, a budget where 33 buyers are buying the same thing and then yeah. one buys it and says can we can we repurpose it so do you know what type of savings you were able to generate? Uh, it, it's massive. I can't give you that off my head because it, it, it changes from year to year. But give me, uh, give me a sense. Was it, uh, and you could do it in Rand if you want, if you could do whatever yeah. currency you'd like, but what's yeah. the, what might you be spending before and what might, what did it switch from? So, yeah, because I, it, I think scale yeah. is important. Yeah. So, a wild guess. It, it could be reduced the cost by a factor of anywhere between 10 and 30. Okay. At a national level. Okay. And, and that's uh, huge. That's huge. If you uh, multiply uh, it across multiple different service offerings, and yeah. if you are spending, and I'm going to convert it to US dollar, if you're spending yeah. a million US dollars and now you're spending 100,000, but you've mm -hmm. done that eight times. So you've got eight million to eight hundred thousand, or whatever those numbers. It could be larger because of the thirty. That ends up being real money. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, I should also maybe uh, just indicate, and you can look this up. Landsat, um, the U.S. Landsat. Yeah. Uh, when it was first launched, uh, so um, NASA, NOAA were involved in that particular mission. So define so define Landsat for a moment. So. It's one of the first uh, remote sensing satellites that went up into space, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Okay. So initially, it was paid for by government, and then the end users used to pay to access that information, or let's say satellite imagery coming out of that satellite. But what actually happened eventually is that, hang on, the challenge we have is that limited uptake. But we're having a problem because government has already paid for this. So why should another government department be paid then pay for this as well? We mm -hmm. pay twice. So let's make this freely available. Okay, because government has paid for it. Yeah, you already have it. It's your it's your image, your file, your data. Yeah, absolutely. And you can go look at the stats. There was an exponential uptake of the satellite imagery across the government departments. Just by taking that one policy decision. I, I love how you just reframe that. And why I'm, why I'm saying I love the way you reframed it is you didn't look at it as an operational decision. Yeah. You looked at it, and I think you've read it in the book, the, the GPP. That's it. You took that and said, this is systems and structure. This is policy. This is operational standards. You didn't say it was just, <clears throat> it was just, well, we, we negotiated a new deal. You saw it as a means by which the organization can be restructured using policy, which is brilliant. Yep. And it comes back to the ecosystem because you're making a policy decision for an ecosystem. Yep. Yep. So I've seen a lot of these kind of nuances playing out uh, in different uh, aspects in this landscape, which I call the space ecosystem, uh, which is what I wanted to share today. I mean, uh, even right now where I am sitting, you know, 
the very first thing that I had to do was to relook at the strategy because that's like the rudder in your ship. You know, it gives you direction. Mm-hmm. It allows you to steer in a specific direction. So without it, you just aimlessly just floating in the ocean. Um, so the strategy is your departure point for the organization. And I don't think a lot of organizations actually play, pay uh, due attention to strategy. And I'll come back to why I say that. And I, I'd I like to hear that because I, uh, I would, I'm going to probably frame it differently, but let me hear, I'd love to hear how you frame it. Yeah. So there's different aspects around strategy. And I think I started off playing to win versus playing not to lose. Uh, if you're playing to win, strategy is key. Okay. And every other aspect of the organization hinges off your strategy, by the way. Um, whether it's your systems, your processes, your structure, it all comes to fruition because of the kind of strategy you put on the table and the strategy that you want to pursue. Okay. And if you think um, of your organization, as in a boat race, let's assume you in a sailboat race, and there's different scenarios you could look at. Okay, so for example, right now in COVID, during COVID nineteen, we had a lot of organizations shut down. So what happens if you're in a sailboat race and the wind dies? What do organizations do? Most organizations just stop and say. There's nothing else we can do. We just wait for the wind to pick up and then we carry on. But there's some organizations that say, hang on, let's get this boat ready. That when that wind picks up, our boat is in ship, uh, ship-shaped condition. We have taken all the mask out of the bottom of the boat. Everything is well greased and oiled and we're ready to go. And it's exactly. those organizations that plan during that particular phase where nothing is happening, where it seems like nothing is happening, plan for when the wind picks up, actually are the winners. And by the way, if you think of um, strategies that are put together at a national level when you're in a recession, you will notice that even in South Africa right now, our president is pushing quite hard for investments in infrastructure. Because that's what countries do. They invest in infrastructure so that when the wind picks up, when there's an upturn in the economy, your economy is ready to go. Those are the strategies you use when it seems like the wind has died down. And it's, you're perfectly, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, you and I are talking. In my opinion, you're perfectly correct. I would add, and I think it's written about, but it's, I will add that the majority of plans that I see when I'm out, worked in over 50 countries, uh, all over the world, lived in Hong Kong, lived in Luxembourg, lived in the US, uh, they're not really plans. Yeah. They are not, they don't take the desired outcome. They don't hit on the, the strategy, the macro tactics, the tactics, all terminology that value would understand at this point, I'm not going to go into all the details, but they're really not a plan. I'll give you an example. And I won't name the country because I'm trying to talk with them right now, but the head of digitalization of a major country in Europe asked a company to create a plan. And they came back with 170 pages of a plan that 
it was almost as if you, they did every single thing that needed to happen in the entire world. And it yeah. was not a plan that anybody could follow. There were no, there were no tactics that you could take a hold of. So most plans that I read are not truly plans. And the second part that I love is exactly what you and I were talking about just before we made the call is we are setting up infrastructure. It's this need to put in place the systems and structure of the GPP. And I apologize, I'm going to say it here, but because someone might ask later, what does that mean? It means the Goldsmith Productivity Principle. I didn't name it. Somebody else named it. There's a, there's a TED Talk in Luxembourg. You could watch where that name came up. But the, the systems and structure need to be put in place. And before you and I started, do you remember what I said we put in place? Yeah. JP Morgan took us on as a private banking client. Yeah. And in doing so, we have set up, we're setting up infrastructure. And even so, when the guy, when he sent, I said, what's our ACH number? What's our wire number? And he sent them over and I said, no, 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 we need more. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I want the ability to get for us every currency in the world. Yeah. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's say we're talking to a wealthy individual that wants to get involved with Project Moonhut, the foundation of the corporations we're building, and they happen to be sitting in Europe. They don't want to use their euros or their dollars because JP accepts the dollars. We want them to be able to send uh, Swiss francs. Yeah. And not have to do an FX, a conversion of the cost of FX back again when we want to buy something in Europe. Yeah. And so what he did, first time he's ever done this, is he went through and grabbed every single code for us, for every currency in the world. And now yeah. when someone will ask us for later, they'll ask us, how can we send it? We'll send our ACH, our wire information. But behind it will be every single currency that we can accept. Right. And that could not be done when you're busy, yeah. busier. So you're perfectly, I mean, what you just said, spot on. I love what you're saying here. And then I want to give you two other scenarios, by the way. Sure. Which I, the, the one is, um, I think it's a common mistake that we make, is that when we're putting together strategies for, let's say, an organization in this case, we kind of look at the environment and we say, okay, who's the leader? in this environment. And very often we try to emulate the leader. It, it can come down to a me too strategy and mm -hmm. um, following essentially. But if you think about it, David, uh, if you again in the boat race, right? If you are second to the leader, you're both racing under the same wind conditions. And if your boats are equally matched, and if you are uh, racing, there's no way you're going to overtake this leader if you're having the same strategy. That's a gr brilliant analogy or example. That's brilliant. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And because you're, way, you're going to be following exactly what they're doing. However, exactly. you're, actually, you're actually going to be in a different wind condition potentially. So you yes. could be following what they're doing, but they're for their condition and you are not for your condition. So even that's wrong. That's, yeah. that's a great example. Yeah. And so, by the way, the only way to beat the front runner is to take a different strategy. Yeah. In the hope that you actually get ahead. Because if you take the same strategy, you're going to just be level. Okay. You're you're 100% right. At least my opinion. Sorry, I'm yeah. not the I'm not the 
end all of all answers, but I agree with you. But but also, if you are the front run, it pays to look behind you to see what the other guys are doing. That's so you can stay. Yeah. yeah, that's competitive intelligence. Yeah, exactly. And by I, the way, have you gotten I'm, to that chapter yet? Yes, I'm. I'm, I'm really. I, I like, like I said, I'm quite amazed at what you put down in terms of pay to think. Because, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure if you're a Formula One fan, but this is exactly the strategy they use in terms of tire management. So you could use different compounds of tire. You got a soft compound, a medium, and a hard. Right. The guy who's running second will not emulate. Let's say the guy who's in the front, and if he stops and changes his tire, the guy who's running second is not going to use the same tire. He will choose a different compound. <laughs> mm -hmm. And likewise, the guy who's leading the race, if the guy who's second who changes his tire, he's going to match him so he can stay ahead. <laughs> yeah. So this strategy is quite powerful, but again, like I said, uh, I know this. What, are you a, you're obviously a fan of racing. Yeah. Is there an individual who's responsible yes. with binoculars or something? Is there a person responsible to try to figure out what tire that other company, that other uh, group is using? Oh, yes. Absolutely. So there's, an, uh, there's the a competitive intelligence component of it, which somebody is watching multiple different pits to figure out which yeah. each one is doing. And then he's feeding back or she is feeding back the person, sorry, the person is feeding back the data so that that pit crew can make its ultimate final decision. Yes. Uh, by the way, there's a whole big data uh, team behind each and every of these teams. Uh, so if you're watching Formula One, you will see Amazon Web Services providing analytics <laughs> to say, this guy's gonna catch up with that guy in, in lap 21 or lap 10. Uh, and they, you know, each and every moving part of the, the car is there's actually data attached to it, which they then stream back. And there's all sorts of decisions being made. And even the strategy can either win you the race or, or you lose the race based on the strategy. All I can say is my... Team. My first time on a racetrack with friends, I was mm -hmm. in the center because they had a car and right. I was standing there and I saw this pit car, the, what is it? The, um, not the pace car, but the, the starting car. What's the first car that goes around that, that starts the race? Um, well, in Formula One, there's no... Uh, no, but in, the, no in Formula One, there's not. But in another race, what happened was this car drives up and I can tell this is the guy who starts the race. So I went out right. when the, the, uh, there was a person in the car with him. She got out. I walked over and I started to talk to him over the hood of the car. Uh -huh. he, at one point, he says, oh, my God, oh, we've got to go. You want to go? Hop in. So my first day... First time ever at the races when I was a kid, I was in the pace car. That's the name. I was in the pace oh, car. My, yes, my yes. first time. People said, I've been coming here for 30 years. I've never been in a car. And you've been in a pace car. So, uh, yes, I, I, I didn't realize, sorry, there was a, uh, an aside, is I didn't realize how, I never thought about it. That's another thing. I've never thought yeah. about how much data analytics goes into the actual on race day decision making. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Uh, 
And then, you know, there's there's a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy. I'm sure you must have read about it. Uh, but normally when organizations look at the environment, they look at it in what is called the, the red ocean. So it's effectively trying to boil the red ocean. So you're doing similar things to other organizations, whereas the blue ocean says take a completely different approach. And I think your book talks about it. Um, yes. Relook at it, redefine it, look at it from different angles um, um, and be different in a way. Um, and I think that's what strategy is all about. And there's an art and it's a process. It's a, so so um, I don't know if you planned on hitting it. What I'd love to hear, and can we transfer back in time? Don't give me today's observation of it. What was uh, not just the over to the top level, but what was the uh, a little bit more of the details of what this new plan you were creating that took you six months? That plan, not today's version of that plan. What was that? What did that plan say? You know what I'm asking? In terms of how it was actually framed in the end. Well, yeah, you said you took you six months to come up with, yeah. I think it was six months. I didn't add the months, but you said by December, you had a plan. So my question is, what did you do in that plan that was so new and so creative or so innovative or did something differently? What was in that? As I said, we took a, what is called a user requirements approach. So, we so that, that's, to, that's top. Yeah. What did you do yeah. inside of that is my question. Yeah. So, so effectively, what I did was to take those inputs and I collated them. Okay. And then I said, hang on, let's see if we can cluster these guys, uh, these responses, essentially. And when we started to do that, there were three clusters that came out. Okay. The one was saying that we need to look at uh, you know, these space products and, and services, essentially looking at it from an environmental resources management perspective. So we manage, need to manage our resources, our oceans, our forestry, um, you know, the water resources. Uh, can we look at our weather planning and so on? So there's a whole string of different user requirements under environmental resources management. The second was saying, there's disasters. So let's look at disasters, safety, and security. And if you go and look under that, um, you know, cross-border risk, uh, moving off assets across the, the, the country, you know, making sure that the assets are secure, um, looking at uh, waterborne diseases, as an example, from a okay. health perspective. Um, yep. uh, so there's a whole plethora of different elements. Uh, positioning and timing for safety, uh, safety point of view, as an example. Then the third one was innovation and economic growth, looking at it from an industry perspective, the spin outs, the spin ins, you, you talked about all the different uh, innovations that came from the space ecosystem, essentially. Um, so we wanted to emulate that aspect of the innovation um, value chain. Um, so, so that was the three clustering essentially. And okay. then we said, okay, if that is our, that the agency has to respond, how do we set up the agency to actually respond to that? And I think this is where the ecosystem, my initial thinking of the ecosystem sort of stemmed up. And I think I'm gonna come back to that a little later on, because if you read our national space strategy, okay. when I talk about space ecosystem, you will see that reflected in that particular strategy. Okay, But I think Perfect. over the years, it's nuanced and 
strengthening the way. I, I appreciate it. You, you know what I'm asking, and I think you know me well yeah. enough after two and a half, and a half hours, is that yes. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I like to dig down because often the missing... My, my wife was the person who did this for me, and I'll share this just as a, an aside, is I used to say to say, well, I give a definition of something and then you give an example of it. So I would say, well, a cup is something you could drink water out of. And my wife one day sat me down and said, no, 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 no. A cup is a certain type of material that's shaped into a form that can hold a liquid. It can come in all different types of mediums. An example of using a cup is so you could drink out of it. And so what often happens when there's an, <clears throat> a description of something, you get the example, but not really the definition of it. And what yeah. you're really trying to accomplish in this, this little set here by breaking it down into the clusters or this, the product lines is another layer of me understanding how you were approaching it. <clears throat> and you approached yeah. it. The first one you brought up was environmental. Yeah. And then the second one was disaster safety and security. And third was innovation and economic growth. So it was interesting because I think if we were to talk to individuals in the uh, Beyond Earth ecosystem, they will, they will start off with innovations and economic growth. That's right, yes. They, they start with not the first one that really is being the use case. For example, yeah. the firefighter, the glasses, the exercise yes. equipment, the baby food, those that I used earlier, this freeze-dried food, they would start yes. off with the other one and thinking, that's not why you do this. Yes. And so it was interesting, the order that you even gave it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it was primarily because of what government was doing uh, in the day with regards to that. And that was our departure point, essentially. Uh, but the last element that we put in, innovation and economic growth, was exactly to the point you're making, uh, not to miss it. Yeah, no, it's, it, and I can hear it. That's why I'm listening to yeah. your words and the, the process in which you're delivering them. <clears throat> and in doing, excuse me, and in doing so, you can, you can get an understanding of how you have approached challenges. And I've got to say so far, I'm, I'm completely impressed with your approach to the things that we've already discussed. I'm, I'm sitting here saying, okay, how could this be reused, amplified, yeah. redefined for Project Moon Hut? Our, yeah. And our directive is to improve how we live on Earth for all species. So how do we amplify the Mirth ecosystem? How do, we, how do we redefine terminology or to get the right individuals engaged in our project? So these, were, these are so far brilliant uh, observations. So thank you. Great. So when we're talking, uh, when we look at an institutional level, we talk about strategic, uh, developing the strategy, but we talk about strategic planning. So the one is the strategy formulation, but the other one is the, the actual implementation of that. So the strategic planning or the strategy aspect is, you know, how do we look at this in your terminology, not problem statement, but the challenge, and then look at it from how do we want to see ourselves in the next maybe five or 10 years? And what are the key goals and objectives that we want to put down for this particular organization? And that's the strategic aspect. But the planning aspect is how do you look at it from an analytical process point of view and translate that strategy into action? And I think in your book, you talk about not project management, but management of projects. You, know, you, mm -hmm. you looked at the two 
limiting you to two projects per person. <laughs> uh, let me uh, explain. The reason that we, the term project management always comes up, but that's an activity within mm -hmm. when you're leading, when you're in the role of overseeing, you have a different challenge. It's which projects to work on. And that's managing projects. So you might have 40 projects going on within your organization, which are priorities and which are not, which could be eliminated, which don't. In each one of them, there's project management. How do we yes. make this project work? So yes, yeah. that's the distinction there, definitely. Yeah, yeah. project management is a philosophy, uh, which I think you would, yeah, mm -hmm. from a process point of view. And what I quite like is when I look at strategic planning, you develop your strategy and then you start planning into the organization. And effectively, what you're doing is you're cascading your goals and your objectives at a strategy level into the performance contract into back into the organization. And I quite like the filtering that you say that's limited at an individual level to not more than two projects per person. And mm -hmm. you give different scenarios, you know, uh, fully capacitated and shared and, and also outsourced as well. But those, those different sort of options that you have in terms of how you bring all of this together uh, inside the organization. Um, and I've seen this now starting to work in where I am exactly right now. Because Perfect, we, great. Taken a new direction in terms of business remodeling, uh, looking at the policies and processes, uh, looking at our systems. And I'm gonna come back to the Goldberg uh, productivity principle, which is what I quite like. And uh, actually, by the way, if you want to, with your team yeah. that you're doing yeah. this work, if you wanna share what I sent to you, yeah, yes, definitely. please do. Please do. This is uh, there. There's the the age of infinite is about infinite possibilities and infinite resources. Yeah. It, it's not to make a, f a few rand on a book. So yeah. please share it with your team because then you can have a similar conversation across the ecosystem. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. exactly. So just so you know, I'm, I'm giving you permission right now. Share it with your team. Great. Let them know they can use it. Let them know because it'll help you not to have to articulate the same message. You're starting from the same point of reference. Great. No, thanks for that, uh, David. I certainly will do that. Um, so we're talking about strategic planning. And you uh, said, sorry, you said look at policy. Yeah, sorry, what did I? You said, let's look at policy. Yes, policy. Now, I'm going to come back to that aspect uh, because I'm going to look at the ecosystem. So let's look at the strategic planning and why we actually do strategic planning. You know, the, you either want to reinvent the organization through continuous improvement. So you've got to see the organization moving forward on a continual basis. So mm -hmm. that's not quite strategic planning. It's just incremental improvement. Um, mm -hmm. But you also want to address maybe a specific challenge as you put it, not a problem, but a challenge, okay? Then you also do what is called mission-driven need or an agenda or addressing a specific mission. And Project Moonhut is exactly that. It's uh -huh. a specific mission that you want to engage in. And you put a strategic plan in terms of how that is gonna to come to fruition. And then you can also manage a strategic change, you know, we're living in a fast, rapid-paced um, environment. Technology is changing by the hour, essentially. Um, how do we keep track and how do we make sure that we're right up there in the cutting edge of uh, that particular change aspect? Uh, so you can use strategic planning for very different um, aspects of the 
challenges in the organization, including increasing revenue and all of the things that we look for in terms of the bottom line. But effectively, what we have to do is ask the tough questions. And I think one of the things that I quite like is um, this issue around why, why we exist, the purpose of the organization. And, um, you know, you have to challenge the status quo. It's not just accepting what you, you know, if you come in as, as an executive into an organization, you just don't walk in, sit down and carry on as business as usual. You've got to challenge the status quo. Because very often you'd find out that the organization is the way it is because, you know, executives have been sort of moving in a particular, let's say, footpath. It's very difficult for them to get off track and look at things very differently. So your job as, as an executive, when you're paid to think, is to challenge the status quo. So you have to reflect and respond to the environment within which we operate, but also looking at it, as I said, how do you beat the competition? Not by following, but by looking at different strategic options. And this is where now when you bring that strategic planning aspect, you develop that roadmap in terms of uh, how you move forward. And what I figured out over the years, and as I said, one of the, when I was given this task and I asked the executive responsible for strategy and planning, what is the process? Uh, I started to look at this and your book actually articulates and frames it exactly how I learned this um, whole art of strategy development. It's, it's, it's a process essentially. You know, you looked at your current reality and there's very different tools that you want you could use in terms of your current reality. But you also want to look into the future, the shared vision. Okay? Now, when you're looking at the current reality, obviously you can do a SWOT analysis or this pestle analysis, but essentially what you're doing is you're taking stock of the present, uh, the, you know, where you are at the moment. And you can do all sorts of audit, um, you know, studies and surveys, you can do you know, referencing and research and so on. But when you're looking at the, you know, the, the future is you're looking at that shared vision, but you define the values, the benefits, the, the value proposition at the, the end point is that here's my vision. When I get to that, uh, achieving that vision, this is what it would look like. And in between, you're doing a gap analysis, essentially, and you're defining, identifying the critical issues between where you are at the moment and where you need to be. And that's when you develop your goals and your plans. That's your strategic aspect. That's the element, the process that takes you from where you are to where you need to be. And that the detailed implementation plan actually kicks off uh, as an offshoot of that exercise. And I kind of figured this out, you know, just by trial and error. I didn't, you know, you can do an MBA. Um, it's not clearly defined in terms of processes and tools. And you can do a SWOT analysis and so on, but how this whole thing fits together, it's actually an art uh, that kind of feeds into um, the process. Um, what I want to do is maybe right now, um, in terms of that process, you, uh, and then just to recap very quickly, you know, in terms of the strategy, and I gave you the example of the National Space Strategy, looked at it from a user needs perspective, understanding what sort of services those particular needs uh, you know, users would require. And that helps you to define the market. And then when you're setting up like your agency or your institution, you look at it from a governance and management perspective. And then you have to look at the coordination aspect. How do you bring all of these different elements together? And this is where the ecosystem now starts to creep in. 
And you can even look at the international cooperation in that perspective, because you know, if you're looking at the space ecosystem, it's not just limited to a national level. It's a global value chain. Um, and this is where international cooperation, uh, Space 4.0 is an example, 3.0 and 4.0, talks about <clears throat> international cooperation and industry. Can you, can you please, because I, first time I've heard Space 3.0, first time I've heard 4.0. Can you mm -hmm. define what they are? So if you go back into the history of um, space, okay, uh, it went through different successive phases, essentially. Um, so we talk about space zero, version zero. This is astronomy, by the way, pure astronomy. Okay. Okay. And I then, love that you went that far back. I was not anticipating. <laughs> so, like, where does he talk about? He says, okay, we, we've gone back, back, back. <laughs> right back to the original. I, I, uh, Nanaran Prasad, when I asked him the question on the podcast, it was a brilliant <laughs> answer. He says, well, let's start with gunpowder. It's like wait, <laughs> and he took all. It took the. It took me all the way back to China and the development right. of gunpowder and how rockets were sent from ship to shore with mail on them, so that the they wouldn't have to take a boat and have to moor and then boat in and give the mail and go back. So they rocketry improved from ship to shore using gunpowder and, and, and it was brilliant. So I, I love that you started with astronomy. That's the first thing I thought about. And I'm assuming you at least heard of non-Iran. Yeah. Okay, so we start with astronomy, go ahead. Yeah, and then there's space 1.0. And I think you know about the space race, so trying to get to low Earth orbit essentially. Um, so, and, and satellites into low Earth orbit. But then you go to space 2.0, that's when you see the space exploration coming in, you know, the, uh, the planetary missions coming in. Um, so that's the, that's the version 2.0. Okay. Version 3.0 is when you see, you know, the MERS space station, and then you have the International Space Station. Now you're seeing international collaboration coming in. Okay, that's version yeah. 3. Uh, and it's still there, it hasn't moved up. But what you see more of right now is version 4.0, which is industry. So even NASA, for example, is outsourcing to the industry. And we've seen many space agencies doing that, opening up. And the ecosystem is now opened up for the industry to be more integrated into the ecosystem. So we're now into version 4.0. It, it, it's interesting that you didn't mention when you went over these, especially at 3.0 and even in the 4.0, I've, uh, the, the context of <clears throat> the outcomes from the industry, these players in each one, because I'm reading websites today of major players, and mm. they will say in there, we are about the safety and security of the United States. Yeah. We are about the this, this, this of our country. Yeah. And it to me is the antithesis of what we are about. I mean, we, yeah. we are about bringing the world together in one entire project that will help move everything forward so we could find commonality and not the divisiveness we're finding even today through a variety of other experiences we're all uh, involved in. And where in this whole, the industry outsourcing, do we find that people actually 
really care about making everybody better? Like this yeah. age of infinite we talk about? Is, is that 5.0? Uh, you know, so David, it, as you're talking, it struck me, by the way. I've been following, you, you might know there's a James Webb telescope that's been yes. launched, right? Yeah. Okay. So it was a joint venture between NASA and the European Space Agency, ESA. Now, if you follow the public announcements that are being made, it's quite funny because what I see is that NASA has done A, B, and C. And on the other side, it's ESA has done C, D, E, and F. NASA has done <laughs> G, H, and I. ESA has done. I don't see a joint exactly. announcement that NASA and ESA has done this and this. I, I see this sort of competitive spirit between NASA and ESA. <laughs> and yet, if you would really think about this whole beyond Earth ecosystem yeah. and the reason for it, is in our minds, the way we play it is, we are about bringing the participation across all ecosystems. And yeah. we, we do not say we are working with X and Y because of their country affiliation or their references to a specific type of organization such as the European Space Agency. We are about individuals and organizations helping us to achieve the desired outcome of improving life on earth for all species. And that's really why you and I started talking is that I saw, at least for the interview, because there have been people who get turned down for interviews, that you had a more holistic view. Yours, yeah. I think you recall, and I'm not trying to pick on you, you were very much Africa. And I said, know the world. Yeah. And that's because that's what we're about is the world. So I, I, I agree with you. I see it's not a collaboration. It's you do one thing, I do another. You do one thing, I do another. Yeah. But yet the mission, success of the mission was because of both the contributions. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So where does, where does we improve the rest of the universe or at least our, uh, the, the world is that 5.0? Yeah. Is that, in your mind, if you were to, to, to say, David, we're in four, five is really where we come together? Yeah. Okay. Because I'm going to use that now, just so you know, but we're, going to, we're not going to call it space 4.0. We're going to call it beyond earth 4.0, and it's going to be 5.0. So 5.0 is mirth. Yes. We said but, it here. But I, want to, I want to draw a small caution David. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with you a little bit, but I'm, I'm trying to play this out in my head. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I've very often heard um, with all the geopolitics that's happening around the world, um, yep. you, know, you look at the bilateral level, country X is not working well with country Y and all sorts of concerns. And, what, okay. and then you have statements as, but look how things are working out in space, you know, there's yeah. many countries working on this particular initiative and and this is a good model because you know when we get to mars uh, we're going to crack those kind of problems or tensions that we have at a geopolitical level it's not going to exist in mars <laughs> I, I, I hope you're laughing very hard when you say that yeah i, I don't know <laughs> uh the the challenges that you have on earth has to be tackled here on earth so, so the way maybe this is might be useful for you to understand a little bit about what when 
when people hear about Project Moonhot, one of the questions sometimes comes up is, are you going to, uh, are you going to uh, have peace on earth for all mankind? Yeah. And I say to them, no, it's not on our agenda. And they look at me kind of strange. And I say to them, look, you put uh, uh, two heterosexual men, a heterosexual woman on an island, deserted island, are you going to have peace? And people will laugh. And just the other day, someone said, well, two heterosexual women on an island would not have peace. And you look at marriages, which are just two people, we don't have peace. So that's not our initiative. However, I'd like you to do an extrapolation from here to the future. Let's take our six mega challenges. Climate change, I'm not going to go into the details. You and I have gone over a little bit. Climate change, mass extinction, ecosystem collapse, which is full ecosystems completely falling apart. We've already had them on earth. Mm -hmm. Then there's displacement, political, economic, religious, you name it. Then there is unrest, again, political, economic, religious. um, You could name the list. There's a long list of them. And then the last one is explosive impact, things such as overfishing, the coral reefs dying, the rainforest disappearing, all of those. My take, this is our plan because we have a 45-year plan, is that in about seven to 10 years, and this is inclusive of the, the doomsday cliff, I forgot what it's called, the mm-hmm. cliff down in South and um, Antarctica. When yes. these pressures start to put conflict on the world, individuals will start, start to ask new questions. And then they're yeah. going to say, who out there is solving this? And we hope that's our plan, to be ready to say, globally work with us. Yeah. That's, that's our, that's, there, this has already been thought through, but that doomsday cliff, uh, what is it called? The doomsday glacier. When mm-hmm. that drops, it won't raise the sea level because it's really the glacier behind it that does a lot of that. Yeah. But once you start seeing Indonesia, Philippines, um, the Maldives, you see the coastal waters of China, uh, the, the Greater Bay happens to be when you and I grew up, it was the Pearl River Delta in China. Right. You look yeah. at the, the coast of the United States, you can go down through Europe and Scandinavia. These water, just water alone, will cause individuals to say, what's the new solution out there? And we're hoping, that's our plan, to be ready for that, to address these type of challenges. I don't think humanity is ready today to get over the geopolitics. I think there's just so much, there's so many challenges there. I'm going to keep my mouth closed. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to bring this aspect a little later on. Okay. Okay, Um, sorry. No, no. uh, But I think it'll be useful just to put it on the table. Um, I've picked this up even inside the organization I'm at the moment at, at Center, the space agency. One of the things that I picked up is we talk about missions. So we have what is called a mission-driven focus. So we have a satellite that's going to be launched or we're going to put a new ground station. So these are specific missions. Okay. So the organization is mission-driven. So we have these good big mega projects that we're looking at. And then we are values-led. So the values that we articulate for the organization is there to ensure that we achieve those missions as a collective. Okay? So yeah. it's mission-driven, values-led. And then I said, well, hang on. 
And this needs to be turned on its head, actually. Mm-hmm. It actually should be values-driven, mission-led. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if you take that approach, you're going to start to crack a lot of, I'm not saying all, but a lot of these global issues. Even the NASA ESA example that I gave you, it's mission driven. The values come second, right? But if you put the values in front and you said, and NASA and ESA sat down and said, what are our values that we collectively agree as NASA and ESA? And how do we communicate around that? What you're seeing right now and how they communicating would be completely different. Absolutely. Which, which is mind-boggling if you think about it for a moment. Yeah. It's, there are stories out there about how by sending a satellite, we're going to improve these six mega challenges over time. No. Yeah. Our directive is to improve life on Earth for all species. That's it. One of the yes. mechanisms we are using is mirth one of and beyond earth one of the tools we're using is on earth tech transfer one of the tools on earth we are using and there's a series of them that's part of the plan but it's not you don't hear this and uh, you know i'm not a space person Uh, and so i don't i i'm kind of baffled at how this is kind of in my mind glossed over yeah, 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 we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to set up the telescope, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and it will help Earth. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Rewind that for a moment. So yeah. you're absolutely right. So how do you fix that in your mind? Yeah. Well, well, this is how you reframe now the, the organizational culture, essentially. You know, what is central to the values of the organization? And then the mission gets padded onto that, essentially. And so, by the way, if you look at it from what's happening globally, when investors are looking into organizations, you know, you, you, you've probably come across the ESG, uh, the economic, <laughs> social, and the governance aspect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's values driven. <laughs> you, you're stepping into muddy water with me on this one, but go ahead. Let me hear what you've said. <laughs> <laughs> because if you take a, a values driven approach, it's, it's not only looking at it from an internal to the organization only, but what is the external value that you're creating? Uh, you're talking about Project Moonhut, you know, how do we improve the life on Earth, as an example? It's values-driven, okay? Project Moonhut is secondary to the fact of what you're trying to achieve. It's improving the quality of life. So, mm-hmm. um, so when we look at how do we take care of the environment, how do we look at the social impact that you're making, it, it's values-driven. And even when you're looking at your customer focus, it's values driven. The customer doesn't care of the particular mission. It doesn't care how you got the data. It doesn't care how you, what ground segment you have. All they want is that data on their laptop or their handheld cell phone, a mobile app or whatever you, that's all they care about. And if you as an organization can look at it from the values driven perspective, how do you do that ethically and morally? I think it's complete because many organizations focus on the mission rather than saying, let's focus on the downstream, the customers so, and the government's so, aspect. Ian, there's one video you watched. We called it the Moon Hut mission. It was that word yeah. mission I hate, sorry. It was because somebody on the team kept on using the yeah. word mission and I put it in there, but we actually call it the Moon Hut project because yeah. it is a project. It's just one piece of everything we're working on. And yeah. the, the question that I have then is how do you, 
not just writing it on a piece of paper and telling people that's supposed to be the the value that we uh, that we defend and we work towards. How have you done it, or how would you suggest organizations do it when it comes to the Beyond Earth ecosystem? Okay, so when you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm asking, right? Yeah, no, I, I okay. know exactly what you're asking. Right. Okay, so um, there's a structured approach, and you, you talked about the the you know the strategy, and then you kind of looking at it from the um, you know the performing aspects, the forecasting, the learning aspects. So. In my framing, I looked at it from a strategy point of view. Then you've got to look at your business models and structure. Then you look at your processes, your systems, and then rewards and recognition for stuff. But an aspect that's truly encompassing all of that is the culture of the organization. Now, what we try to do, uh, we actually started this exercise about eight months ago. We're going through what is called a change management process in terms of re-looking at the culture of the organization. And by the way, if you want to change the culture of the organization, the trick to doing it is by taking each and every individual on that change management journey. Mm -hmm. Each and every, so if you want to change the organization, you've got to change the behavior of each and every individual. And by the way, I should also mention, you could have the most fantastic goals on earth you can try to implement it. But ultimately, the success of that strategy is based on the collective behavior of your organization. And that comes to each and every individual playing their part in the organization. So when we looked at change management, um, we used a particular model called ADCA. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. Um, but first of all, you've got to create the awareness for change. So you articulate the strategy essentially, and then you say to the organization to get onto this bandwagon and this strategy, this new direction, this organization cannot, it cannot be business as usual. Okay. Um, because if we do, we're going to fall off the bandwagon. So you cannot maintain the status quo. You cannot do more of the same. You cannot just resolve your current issues and think that things will be different. So you're gonna to start to relook at the organization. And so the first one is to create the awareness. If you've got a new strategy, make them aware that there's a need to change. The second element in the ADCA is called the desire. We need the, each and every individual to ensure that they have a desire to change. If there's no desire to change, nobody's going to change. Okay. And there's processes, by the way. There's a, the, the ADCA model is a, is a, is a process-driven approach. So each mm -hmm. and every individual has to be engaged in this process. So you create the de desire, the case for knowledge. So now you give each and every individual the tools in terms of how do I change? What do I need to do to change? And there's a whole suite of tools that we, you know, neural leadership, um, positive thinking, reinforcing, and uh, those kind of positive thinking. Um, it's, it's quite interesting um, in terms of how your thought patterns could influence. I mean, we just did a neural leadership, actually, I think it was in November. And just by the way, I need to give you this example. There's a set of twins. I think this is the case in the US. The, the father happens to be a mass murderer, unfortunately. So he's on death row. Okay. 
a few years down the line, they go and look at these two, the, the set of twins. So the one is also turned out to be just like his dad. And the question that was posed to him is why did you choose this path? And his response was because of my dad. Then they looked for the other twin and they found him and he was living in a small town. So the first, did the first twin, the, both of them knew of their dad? Yeah, both of them knew of the dad. Okay. Yeah. They found the second twin and he was in a little village and he had just won the father of the year, happily married with kids. The question posed to him was, how did you turn out to be like this? And his response was exactly the same as the first, because of my dad. Mm -hmm. The first one says, I just emulate what my father did. The second one says, I refuse to do what my father did. Mm -hmm. The power, the choice is in your hand. So even in a work environment, you can make a decision as to which way you want to go. Uh, th there's a whole lot of thinking around neural leadership in, in terms of reinforcing positive thinking. And you've got to take each and every individual uh, through that journey in terms of what, how do you reinforce positive thinking. And that's, it's, that's it's a, a, I, I love how simplistic you've made it. Yeah. Yet at the it's same time, well, it, it's, there's a, you've worked around the world. I, there's a difference in my mind for someone who speaks around the world and someone who works around the world. A lot of individuals yeah. will speak. So they say, oh, I've worked in this country. No, you didn't. You went to a building. Yeah. A bunch of people met at the building. You spoke and you left and you went on a tour. That's not working in the country. Yeah. There's a big difference culturally about perceptions and, ah. and messaging. If I was to, It's not as clear as I'd like it to say, but it's that it's not a ubiquitous. It's not a universal understanding yeah. of how cultures work. And I'm going to give you probably the most shocking or eye-opening, and I hate to use the term eye-opening is what I'm going to say, of an example mm -hmm. that really, it was one of my first real takes on how different we, we can see the world. And I was with my first friend I ever made in Hong Kong, lived there for 10 years. It was a COVID, things have changed. And I remember sitting down with her in, in her living room, in our dining table. And I looked at her and I said, how do you give a police report? And what I was really asking was, how do you see the people that you, when you view them? And the mm. answer was shocking in my mind, because you've already heard, I'm assuming, uh, people have said, well, you all look the same. Yeah. And we say, we don't look the same. Well, guess what her reaction was? Just take a wild guess was the first thing that she talked about. I've already given you the clue. <laughs> she said, and this might not be a universal construct, it's hers, so let's just take it as hers. She right. said, the first thing I would say to the police officer is one eyelid, two eyelids, or no eyelids. Whoa! <laughs> That micro detail <clears throat> was the first thing. Yeah. Then she said the bridge of the nose. Then she said the shape of the face. And I'm sitting there because that is not a more of a, I'm going to let, let me just use America because I grew up in America. Yeah. 
uh, blonde hair, blue eyed, such and such. It's a different orientation. And yeah. she made comments about the differences between one eyelid, two eyelids, and zero eyelids. There's actually, in culture, in her culture, one of them is not very good. Okay. And their hair, if you went back 40 years ago, or hair in Asia tends to be black. Yeah. So that's not a distinguishing characteristic. My point, getting back to this, what people see or what they believe, is to change an organization is to also understand that each different message is interpreted so differently in every culture, in every situation. And it could be how tall you were when you grew up, how short you were when you grew up. It could be how how many years you went to university. It could be, did you grow up with one parent or two? Were you economically advantaged? Were you not? I mean, the the list is endless. So it's it's you made it very simple and i'm trying to say that i I also appreciate the complexity of this is that okay what i added no uh, uh, david i think what you just put on the table i've seen this play out in my different experiences across the world (laughs) i i I would do you know this saying let me ask you do you know the saying if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. I've heard it, yes. Why did you? Why have you heard that? Because it's not in the culture that I've lived in. No, neither in my culture as well. So. It was, I, I had a business in South Africa and we had, we were in Cape Town. And during the last really challenging drought, I remember showing up and they said, we can't flush the toilets. Oh, yeah. It was, and they, and they said, uh, and they, they had water drainage off the roofs, off the rooftop. So it went into a bin and there was a bucket next to the toilet. And if it's yellow, let it mellow. And everybody used the same toilet. But when it was brown, you flushed it down, but you also use the water from the drainage system. Right. You would, yeah. you would not understand that if you probably lived in Bali. Well, not even that. I mean, I live in South Africa, but in Pretoria, uh, we didn't have a drought. <laughs> oh, okay, so, so as we were as we were uh, getting the aroma of the of uh, you didn't even know what was going on. But that that's where I learned that. I learned that in uh, while I was down in South Africa in uh, Cape Town working. Yeah, no, but I fully agree on the on the on the culture shock uh, aspect. I've seen that many many times. But but just. Coming back to your question, it, it's we using a specific framework for for change management in the organization. Okay. Um, and by the way, it's a process that's taking two years. It's not a switch of the button. It's a a long and tedious process. That much I can say. <laughs> okay. You know it is, and it, it, it's an ongoing process. It's like raising it's, an ongoing process. it's raising children. You don't stop raising your children to some yeah. degree. Yeah. So, so yes. I talked about the knowledge, but the, 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 the other A is the ability, the ability to change. Do you have the ability as an individual to change, as a team, as an organization? And then the last R is a reinforcement. So you've got to keep reinforcing uh, the change elements that you've, you've walked through already. How, how do you hire in your case? How do you hire for the ability to change? Yeah, that's a very, very good question, uh, David. Um, and I think we've actually re-looked at our recruitment process altogether. Um, so when we're doing, uh, going through a recruitment process, um, apart from just looking at it from a, you know, uh, just an interview process, essentially you, you get a candidate or 
different candidates and you pose a whole series of questions to them. But now we, we um, ensure that they go through a barrage of different tests. And also the culture fit is, is one of the tests that we put them through as well, uh, to make sure that there's uh, some tests that are done to see if there's a fit. And the, you know, we have a consultant on hand who actually does all of these for us. And very often, you know, we get it right, but sometimes we get it wrong, unfortunately. Uh, and it's never an exact um, science. It's, <laughs> no, it's, no, not. No, it's <laughs> there's no button on the back you can press reset. Yeah. You know, let's try this again. Yeah. It's yeah. your on your team. Is it primarily South Africans? Uh, primarily, yes, but not all of them are South Africans. Uh, primarily, yes, but we do have uh, foreign nationals working at the uh, the agency as well. Fact, now, because this is not this is not a normal question, someone would probably possibly ask. Foreign yeah. national to me to you could be Botswana, Zambia. Uh, you know, they don't have to be all over the world. So when you, if you looked at, let's say, how many of your team are from the continent of Africa? Uh, I'd say probably two, three percent, maybe. Uh, so our team is, is not big. It's uh, just over 200. It's about 204. So out of 204 people, how many of them are from South Africa and how many are outside of South Africa? Okay, I can't give you the exact stats now, but I'm say around about 194, five would be South Africans. Okay. So that's when you said two or three, I, it kind of, what do you mean two or three? So yes, it is a, so it makes it easier for you to be able to create this culture change because like the, like my friend Hazel, you tend to see the world with certain uh, equal perspectives, not generally equal across the world, but in, in terms of a, a bandwidth, it's a standard deviation is closer than it would be otherwise. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll caution against that. Okay. We're not a monoculture in South Africa. I think you've probably experienced yeah, that. Yeah, so the, the Afrikaners, the, there's a whole, yeah. there's five there's, different versions, five or six. That I, uh, 11 African languages. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, and then there's Indians, and you get different ethnicity around that. And then there's colors as well. Yeah. Um, so and then there's mixed that I think was mixed, right? When you put them together, um, it's very dynamic, but you also have your own challenges. But diversity is very good, okay? Because you bring different perspectives to the table, which is what I want to talk about in the ecosystems planet. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So I just just coming back to your question, we we're talking about values-driven, mission-led, and how do you bring an organization to embrace the values of the organization? and then push through the mission aspect. So there's a whole change management model that we use to, to bring each and every individual uh, staff member on board. Uh, so I just wanted to share that aspect. Yep, appreciate it. And, and maybe, um, I think we, we're getting to the third element, this is the ecosystems approach, okay. When you think about it very carefully, if you look at governments across the world, there, there are two or three priorities that any good government would be pushing at a national level. Um, so one is 
ensuring this economic growth, okay, stimulate the economy. And that goes hand in glove with what we call wealth creation for, for the nation. The second one is improving the quality of life. And you want to do that when you're making policies around these different aspects, the, the social and the economic. We talk about the socioeconomic uh, challenges of, uh, of a country. You need to balance that against the sustainability issues, environmental sustainability, and so on. So if you look at any particular decision that you need to make, irrespective, you can give me any particular you know, decision that needs to be made. You can frame it in one of three boxes. It's either has to deal with economic issue, social issue, or an environmental issue. It might have elements or different elements embedded in it. So it could not, maybe not just fit neatly in one of those boxes, but it could have different elements. So when you're looking at it from an ecosystem's point of view, um, you know, you, you're gonna look at as I said, when I started off, uh, when we talk about ecosystems, we, we're looking at it from a, a natural, you know, biological uh, ecosystem or communities interacting with its animals and plants. So we talk about, so the word ecosystems come from ecological systems, essentially. And I think there's some really neat aspects around when you're observing these kind of ecological systems. Um, one of them is if you look at the ecosystem, you have diversity. So diversity is an asset. So the ecosystem is defined by these different elements, whether you're talking about different organisms and they, there's an interdependence and there's a complexity around how they come together. But inside of that ecosystem, you also have road differentiation. You know, different elements have different functions in, inside this ecosystem, but when you put them together, it defines this, the system itself. Now, one of the important things around the ecosystems is what we call the economies of scale. And, and I know this is an economics term, but it's the performance of the ecosystem is overall greater than the sum of its individual elements. So if you take each and every element within this ecosystem, and if you add up their contribution, if you look at it from a systems level, at a systems level, the contribution is greater than the sum of the individual contribution. Uh -huh. and I'm gonna yes. come back and show you how they link up back to, let's say human-made systems or policy systems. And then there's an element of self-organization by the way, inside these natural ecosystems. There's a dynamic balancing, you know, you have these stability and sustainability and there's flexibility in terms of how all of these different organisms come together. They're organized around each other. But there's also elements of co-creation. There's development parts leading to succession and co-evolution inside this ecosystem. And then you also look at mutual beneficiation, uh, mutual benefits, um, those symbiotic sort of relationships and partnerships inside the ecosystem. Now, these are kinds of observations and characteristics of the ecological systems, right? Now, when you look at it from, um, you know, even at a national level, we talk about national systems of innovation. The elements that I just spoke about just now in the ecological systems is actually found inside these kind of systems that we try to create, because that's exactly what we're trying to emulate inside these human-made systems. Because as I said, there's three aspects that the drivers 
for the system is either it's social, economic, or environmental. And it might be a subset of maybe two or more of these things, but you have a driver for the system itself. And, and we're gonna talk about space ecosystems just now, but you can reduce any decision-making um, or decision that you need to make in one of those three areas, okay? So those are the main tenets of these sort of human-driven systems. Um, so even if you take Project Moon Hut, uh, there's, a, there's an element, you wanna bring the social good back. So there's the social subsystems, there's economic subsystems, there's innovation, you wanna bring the industry in. You wanna look at growth potentials, um, you know, capacity to produce new goods and services through innovations by using the moon as a base. There's also environmental issues that you'll be looking at. How do you extract natural resources and bring them back as an example? So you can take any particular decision or project and you can deconstruct it and you can put it in one of these three boxes. But one of the things that I picked up is when you're looking at a systems uh, and we talk about national systems of innovation and effectively what that means is you create this multitude of institutions inside of your national landscape, but your system is defined not by those nodes or institutional nodes inside of the national system, but the interlinkages and the interactions between those different institutions. Mm -hmm. That's yep. what defines the ecosystem. And that's where we get a lot of the aspects wrong. Uh, so even, for example, uh, one of the things that we are still battling, um, and, and it's not peculiar to South Africa, by the way, many nations do have this particular problem. We set up these different institutions in this landscape, but when we do institutional planning, we do it at an institutional level. We do not do it at a system level. This is a systematic problem even in South Africa. It's everywhere. Change... it's everywhere, yes. It's, it's everywhere, yeah. And by the way, when you're looking at um, strategic planning at an institutional level, you've got to take away the unit of analysis being just the, the institution itself, but looking at it from the ecosystem point of view. How do I optimize the institution within the broader ecosystem? And you talked about, you know, the enterprise thinking, and you talked about the 50,000 foot viewpoint. Yeah. This is exactly what it is. When you get to the enterprise, you think at that level, the 50,000 foot viewpoint is your ecosystem that you're looking at. Yes, and it's interesting because Paid to Think was written at a time before it took 10 years, uh, 10 years to write something like that. It was written before I got involved in Beyond Earth. And now yeah. you'll hear me if you ever hear this phrase, I say the 297,000 mile perspective. Okay. <laughs> and that is the Mirth line. It is 297,000 miles because the earth is elliptical and way it flows and there's a distance between it, but we're including outside on the other side of the moon as part of the Mirth ecosystem. So yes, the yeah. so 50,000 foot view is the perspective where you raise up above everything else and you can see everything happening instead yeah, exactly. of being down in the weeds or yeah. the old saying is you can't see the forest from the trees because you're so into it. Exactly. And, and that viewpoint is essentially looking at it at an ecosystem point of view and understanding the ecosystem. 
And um, so you've got to understand the sort of drivers. Uh, what are you trying to change in the ecosystem? Is it the social progress? Are you looking at economic stability or growth? Are you looking at environmental stewardship? Those are the drivers that you want to push um, in different institutions, essentially. But you also need to understand the driver interfaces, you know, which is the balancing between these different drivers and the tension points between these different drivers. So you could have multiple stakeholders, but each one have a different interest. It could be a social aspect, the economic or environmental aspect, but how do you bring all of that together and optimize and balance between those different interests and tension points? Obviously, you're not going to make everybody happy, but how do you optimize it um, that most people are happy? So here, here's a here's a uh, a challenge that I run into all the time, is how do I say this properly? An individual has a talent, or a propensity, or a belief structure that has gotten to them to where they are at the moment that they're there. I and I'm going to take it a jump. I hate when people say you can't do that. Well, the only reason I'm sitting in front of you is because I did that. So you're telling me I can't do it, but that's why I'm here. So how do you tell me not to do something that has gotten me where I am? Yeah. So my point is you have somebody who's had a propensity, a belief, a structure, I, a whatever it may be, that got them to the point in which they are brilliant or as good as you'd like them to be at that moment. Yeah. The question then is, if you have a 45-year plan, when do you stop them or change them to fit the new paradigm? Because if you do so too early, mm -hmm. they will not perform in the way in which is needed. So let me give you an example, and then maybe you can come back with it. Yeah. Our, our, our small project totals uh, the, the four phases of the moon hut is 1.6 trillion. The new transport system is, six, is 90 billion. The next system we have on and on and on, it's a little shy of 2 trillion across the board. Some of the people we are bringing on are very much into making money. Yeah. But they understand as part of their roles, contracts, negotiations, leveraging assets, uh, economics around the world, being able to find capital. That's what drives them. If you yeah. take that up from underneath them, their their premise for living if you and that's not a maybe that's a wrong way to say it their 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 skill set that got them there we yeah. won't be able to achieve our desired outcomes so therefore how do you know and this is part of mine how do you, you keep the culture where it needs to be you keep the directive near it needs to be but you have to let a great skater be a great skater you have to let uh a ronaldo play the way he is, but do you then have to kind of mold them to your environment? How do you manage that? And I think, do you understand what I'm saying? You, no, I understand exactly. What it's you're it's a and when you have a 45 year plan, part of my plan is is in 10 years we'll change them. <laughs> you know, not yes. now because that's how they're good. In 10 years they'll evolve, yeah. but right now that would be the worst thing to do because that's what made that physicist brilliant. They're arrogant, yeah. they're stubborn, and as you say. In the beginning, they come up with ideas that are radically different, and you yeah. want that. Yeah. So, how do you approach that? You know, David, I think it it comes back to leadership. Um, so, by the way, every time I engage with the industry, 
I learn something new. I never enter a conversation assuming that I know everything, okay? Um, so this open-mindedness in terms of listening and trying to drop sort of these linkages when you're listening to experts, how does that fit into the ecosystem? So as you rightfully put it, each one is on their own individual journey inside this ecosystem. So we talked about the values driven in the mission led, but under the mission led, you bring in different expertise, whether it's mathematicians or scientists or engineers, but you're gonna bring, you know, you're gonna pick the cream of the crop essentially to come through and to drive those specific missions. And uh, you've got to find a natural home for them in, in terms of how they fit into this particular institutional landscape. Um, as much as you're pushing those particular values, you've got to give them the opportunity to grow. So just yeah. to give you an example, um, a few months ago, we had a technician uh, wire up a piece of equipment wrongly, blew it up, cost about $40,000. Now, one of the things we could have done is says, this is a no-no. Sorry, this is not acceptable. There's the door. We didn't do that. We, we, we wrote it off to a learning experience. Okay. So the culture of the organization must also create the ability or the room for individuals to be innovative as well and bring their own creative inner spirit as well. Because different things drive different people. Engineers are driven because they want to see something work. Give them that space. Uh, so the leadership is going to be very important in terms of how open-minded you are, in terms of allowing that particular growth, allowing um, failures to happen. And I know in some cultures, failure is a no-no. When you fail, you close the project down. Right? Yeah. I've worked in those cultures. And it's yeah. challenging. Yeah. And it comes back to uh, leadership in terms of how you view growth of the, the organization. Um, and safe to say, inside of Sansa, we've, we've taken radical approaches. We've got new recruits coming in and saying, hang on, this thing's not going to work. Can, can we look at it this way? Of course, let's try it. Um, show us, demonstrate to us. And it works. We've seen some really phenomenal stuff coming out with new colleagues coming with new ideas, new blood. But we find a way of fitting them into the narrative. And I think when you talked about managing projects, how the leadership sort of cascades down and making sure that everything sort of also cascades up in terms of the delivery of the strategy. And I think that's very key in terms of ensuring the alignment. Um, and I want to come back to this point. Okay. Yep. No worries. <laughs> I want to come back to this point. Um, maybe let me touch, touch on it this, this way. When you looking at uh, changing the organization. And, and by the way, I'm probably talking about the last uh, point now is transforming the space ecosystem. Okay. Um, and I will want to come back to four in a moment, but let's, let's get this. Go ahead, transforming yeah, the space yeah. ecosystem. Okay, so, so let, let me give you a few insights in terms of what I've observed in my own institutional landscape, okay? One of the things that I picked up is that when the organization was set up, um, 
there was a big operational focus. You bring in different institutions, you're clumping them together, and they're all coming with a strong operational focus. And what actually happened is you built your entire enterprise architecture around the, inter, uh, around the operations of the organization. Mm -hmm. So your operations actually drove the enterprise architecture. Okay. Yeah. The problem with that is that you get stuck in a rut because you don't have much flexibility. And we said, no, hang on, that, that cannot be, that's not a business model. Um, because I said to the colleagues, you know, hang on, we're a small organization, we're about 200 people. If you look at the major institutions like your NASA's and your ESA's and your CNES's, you're talking about thousands of people, okay? But how is it that there's so much of innovation and you know, growth in those particular organizations? Because they have to deal with legacy systems. So it can't be that operations is driving your enterprise. It's your strategy that must drive your enterprise. Now, I think you spoke about <laughs> the Goldsmith productivity principle. And I, and I, when I looked at this, you know, I kind of smiled, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, it it kills me, but it's the only thing that I've ever written. That's, it was somebody else named it after me. So I, I is, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Because it, when, when, you, when I read it, and I actually I think I, you, it was one of your videos that you, you shared with me. And I thought to myself, hang on, <laughs> this is absolutely correct. I've seen it play out over and over again because we invest so much of time on our people issues. But actually, if you don't get your systems right, you're screwed. So just, just to read, 80% of the results in an organization come from the systems and structure in place and not the people. The people yeah. are not the most important part of an organization. Yes. And then you got to watch the video to understand it again it's on ted but it's the 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 reason i'm bringing it up is it's it really is that powerful and i'm i i even believe it's close to 90 percent, but no one's going to believe me until they yeah. start to it's like watching the matrix yeah. when neo is in that and i won't give away but when neo finally makes that major change if you haven't seen it yet that's a big issue but uh that's a challenge it is where you realize everything you've learned might not be right yes and that's amazing isn't it you go you're sitting there it's the only it's a, a typical book is 30 to fifty thousand words a big book is 100 this is two hundred ninety-seven thousand words yeah and in the one the, out of the whole book that's the only thing people bring up almost every time no no yeah. no, no that can't be I'm like <laughs> you're picking three pages out of 700 and some odd pages <laughs> but it is but, but it's that true it is it that true. yeah it, it, does resonate. I, I've picked it up because you can have the best engineers, scientists in the world working for your organization, but how do you bring them together? And it's your systems. Mm -hmm. It's your processes. Yeah. And, you know, right now we're actually going through that process of relooking at our systems. You know, we've, we've looked at the enterprise architecture. We've gone cloud computing. We're looking at analytics, business analytics things that we never considered two, three years ago. But it was an eye opener because when I was reading that particular chapter and looking look at your video and it's like, 
this is exactly what we're doing uh, because it's a glue that brings the people together if you do it wrong everything falls apart if you do yeah. it right everything moves yeah. forward so it's yeah. that it's that important in the structure now we do say as part of the this principle is that the people who design the systems and structure yeah. in this one context are extremely yeah. important. They're not more important than the engineer. They're not more important than the architect, but because the architect does a different service, but the leadership yeah. who designs the systems and structure at this point is unbelievably valuable because if they don't know how to do it, you end up with organizations with bad culture, you organizations that struggle, organizations that have all sorts of challenges all over and over and over again. And so, yeah. yes, it's a, it's a, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, in your book, you gave a, a quite a good example of, you know, you, you talked about the one company where, um, you know, this individual said to you, you know, our systems are not working, but we still have to deliver. Yes. And you said to management, go and fix your systems. So I was like, okay. Yeah. yeah the, the, in that example, they were, the management was saying these people were not delivering. They weren't yeah. prioritizing and in a in little bit of research, it didn't take much, can come to find out that their systems break all the time. And no matter if it broke or not, the management still expected the same returns. And yeah. I, they hired me to do all sorts of work. And I went back and I said, it's a simple fix. Yeah. Your computer systems are terrible. And you're, they'll, you'll never be able to get over it without solving that. And yeah. that was the, the kind of emphasis. I, I, uh, I want to go back and then we can come back here again, because sure. one thing I want to hear from you is your definition, and I'm going to call it beyond earth in yeah. the, you call it space, but the beyond earth ecosystem, right? What's your definition of it? What do you see? What's, what's your take on the world? Take it any way you'd like. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you mean the definition of beyond Earth? No, no, no. The this ecosystem you called it the space ecosystem, and I'm saying, yeah. uh, remember, to me, space is a geog is not an industry; it is a geography. So, therefore, right. it's not space; it is a geography. It's just where yeah. you pick in the universe that you're choosing. So, when you talk, uh, what is the industry, this ecosystem like? What is it like on planet Earth? What do you see happening now? Where do you see from your perspective, your eyes, going back to that analogy, as a, in your role in your country and what you're trying to accomplish, what do you see when you look out at the ecosystem? And, I, and please be as blatantly honest as you can. Okay, so when, when I talk about the, the space ecosystem, okay, there, there's three different, let's say four different levels that we look at it from. Uh, the first or the top layer is the Y aspect or what I call the thematic areas. So just to give you a sense, ultimately what you want to achieve in uh, space ecosystems is to produce products or services or new in inventions, which could be products in themselves. So those particular products or services can be categorized into different domains, okay? So you could look at remote sensing or earth observation, and these are satellites that are normally in low earth orbit. Then you have telecommunications and a lot of, in fact, the biggest chunk, um, maybe space exploration is probably exceeding that at the moment, but I, I think when you're looking at applications on earth, telecommunications is by far one of the biggest um, segments of the global space value chain. 
Then you have navigation, positioning, and timing. And then the fourth one is space exploration. So the space ecosystem includes the MERP ecosystem. So you said navigation, you said three, navigation. No, so it's earth observation. Oh, okay. Telecommunications. And then the third one is navigation, positioning, and timing. So it's NPT. And then the fourth one is space exploration. Okay. Yeah. So the top tier is your thematic areas in terms of the products and services that you're trying to push out of this ecosystem. We're squeezing this ecosystem to produce products and services. And it's not products and services to be consumed inside of the space ecosystem alone. It's outside as well. It's a spin-off. Mm-hmm. We also look at spin-ins as well. Okay. Um, so that's by definition how I look at it from the top tier is the thematic areas, which includes beyond Earth as well, if that answers the question. So when you look at from a political, economic, uh, let's just take those two because I could go further. From a political yeah. or an economic level or perspective, what do you see when you look out today? Um, so at the moment, if I look at beyond earth in terms of the activities, I think we, we only off the starting block. We, we nowhere close to talking about uh, a mirth economy just yet. Okay. Um, it's going to happen that much. I know because there's quite a number of initiatives around the moon, Mars, and so on. Uh, but at the moment, it's more exploratory. Let's get a rover down. Let's investigate uh, whether there's moisture in the soil. What does the geology looks like? And it's more the precursor missions to what's yet to come. Okay. And then as the you know technology refines, your launch vehicles, and you have that ability to get there much quicker, much easier. And I think that's when like Project Moonart, you will see them taking traction. And I think you, you know, there's a lot of work from what I'm hearing already in the pipeline. Yes, and we've got a ton. Yeah, yep. exactly. So all of that is coming to fruition, but it's in the pipeline and it's going to come up. What, what about the geopolitics that, again, I'm only asking because of your role. If you weren't yeah. in the role, I wouldn't be asking this, but we've got uh, challenging positions globally as to where things are going to be done, who's going to do them, who gets the benefit from them. Yeah. Uh, countries were not, you can't work with them. You can't work with these people. There's a lot of that. What's your political, I don't know how much you could say, but yeah. yeah. What's your thoughts on this? So, so just maybe to give you some insights, and you probably know this. Um, so if you look at the UN treaties and conventions, um, and you look at the number of countries that have signed up or ratified the Moon Treaty, there's not many countries that have done so. And the question is, why haven't they done that? There's always this issue around, so what is the mutual benefits? Um, and when you look at the Outer Space Treaty, you know, um, outer space is meant to be the province of all mankind. So if Nation X goes to the Moon and there's some economic benefits, then it should go benefit all mankind. Now the question is, does that include economic benefits as well? So if you've spent a trillion dollars, so who should the economic benefits go to? Should it be the nation state that actually spent the trillion dollars or all of mankind? 
Um, and if you bring back mining resources or resources that are mined from abroad, um, and now you're trying to influence national economies or global economies, sorry, who should that benefit? Those are the open-ended questions that, that hasn't been answered yet. And I think that's what's detracting us from moving towards a unified framework around the moon and, and so on. And by the way, these, these have been long-standing issues. Oh, um, even in my short time involved in this, yeah. these are heated debates. Yeah. They, they're, they're not universally understood. And in my small little thing that I'm doing here, I get 30-page documents that people write about how the world <laughs> should be changed. I'm like, really? You spend all this time? What have you done about it? Well, I wrote the paper. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, congratulations. You wrote a paper. What are you doing about it? And it's, it's not yeah. easy when you, uh, I, I have a lot of friends that are, live in China. I have a lot mm. of friends that live in Russia. I have a lot of friends that live in uh, Europe and in, in Africa and in, in South America and, the, and in Australia. I have people all over the world that I love and appreciate. And those individuals are great individuals. And this whole political overlay is often a challenge in my mind because to me, we are bringing every. That's what we want to do is bring everybody together. It doesn't. Yeah. It it doesn't matter what border you have, what language you speak, how you were brought up. We're not. We're not aiming towards government. That's not our. That's not our macro tactic. Ours yeah. is to bring individuals from around the world to help us wherever they can. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, I should mention this to you. <laughs> There's a joint initiative between Russia and China. Yes. Um, on uh, a sort of, uh, I think it's also a lunar um, mission. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yep. And just by the way, South Africa is part of the BRICS. Brazil, yep. Russia, yep. India, China, and South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been invited to express our interest in joining this. So this is what we're doing in the next week or two, essentially. This is how does South Africa plug in, right? And it, it's, it's one world. Yeah. And it's, it, it's part of how, why we are not as visible. We're not yeah. looking to play that game. We want people from South Africa to be involved. We want people from wherever their skill is that's of value to moving us forward. Yet, if you look yeah. at those six mega challenges again, and you look at what could happen with a sixteen, a fifteen cm sea level water rise, or a thirty cm sea level rise, but let's just take fifteen, which is six inches, the world will be a different place, and the pressures to be able to deliver solutions will not be as. You'll be fighting a one. You'll be fighting on two fronts. The front is where do we take people? How do we take care of society? And the other one is where do we take them? Yeah. And our hope is, with what we're doing, is that someone will say, "Hey, you know, you ever hear about these these Project Moonhot crazy people? They're the they're the people who've been using the right tire." Yeah, <laughs> but, but but what you're doing, David, is breaking the rules or breaking the protocols. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're trying to. That's in. I've said this many times. The the beyond earth ecosystem likes to pound their chest on all the things that they're working on. And we appreciate yeah. that because we get to hear about it, but that's yeah. not who we are. We are yeah. keep your head down, do the work. Let's just keep on working and find the right yeah. people who want to build. 
yeah, and exactly. that's a, a different approach. So we've we've covered the space ecosystem. The trend. is there anything else? Uh, this was fascinating. Is there anything else based upon our conversations before that you you've, are top of mind, or something that you didn't bring up that you would love to have said something about? Yeah, no, just to give you a quick perspective in terms of just completing this picture around the sure. space ecosystem. So I, I've, I've looked at the products and services um, in those four thematic areas, but you also have to look at it from the building blocks perspective. Okay, So there's, uh, there's also about uh, four, maybe five building blocks. Uh, there's the human capital element. And so you've got to build the warm bodies into the system. So your, your mathematicians, your scientists, your engineers, your technicians, you've got to have uh, that capacity or the capability to be able to deliver on those particular missions. Um, then you need to look at a robust industry. Uh, so you have to have an industry base. And I've talked about uh, Space 4.0, which is essentially where we are at the moment. There's a big industry footprint into the ecosystem. Uh, you've even seen billionaires <laughs> across the world turning their attention to the space industry. Um, and there's quite a few out there. And then you've got to look at it from the infrastructure perspective. What infrastructure do I need to put down? Those are, that is also a key building block. But an element which is what we're talking about is the international partnerships. Mm -hmm. You know, um, bringing in different international players that we could leverage on each other's capacity and even from an economics of scale point of view, how do we put our resources together to develop to deliver something that's much greater than we could deliver individually. Um, you've got to look at the intellectual property aspects of the ecosystem. Uh, how do you manage that if you have different partners involved? And I think those are the kind of tricky issues that that's probably fueling some of the geopolitics at the moment, so the intellectual property issue, you know, you, know, you have the ITAR and all of that um, in terms of regulations. But then you get down to the, maybe the third level which is the functional activities. You define your products and services, then your building blocks, what's needed to give effect to the ecosystem. But when you get to the daily you know, grind in terms of what you actually do on a daily basis, there's your mission requirements. So you can take your project Moonhut, for example. What's your mission requirements? What's the core? What's the purpose? What sort of technologies do I need to make this mission possible? What are the enabling technologies? Do I need to do further research and development? Do I need new technologies to be pushed into this value chain? And once I get up and going, you know, launching and operating, mission operations. Um, and then obviously the last aspect is coming back to the first tier, which is a product and services, which is what I call your space applications, building those applications, and then also your, your products. But um, some of the the higher level framing of that is including the space law and policy. And by the way, uh, at the moment, I should mention this, uh, I'm working with some of the colleagues to, to build what is called an African Space Policy Institute, because that's something that's missing in the African landscape. Uh, when we're looking at it, how do we position the African space ecosystem within the global ecosystem? So this is where the ecosystems come in to play. Yeah. Uh, and then you could look at the space ecosystem from a national point of view. So you could get different levels of the ecosystem as well. And then the, 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 the other element that we, we've spoken a lot is the strategy and the business models um, at an institutional perspective. So when you take all of this together and you 
put it into an ecosystem sort of framing? How do all of these things come together? How do you get human capital in, in how do you get the industry engaging into the value chain? What sort of infrastructure? Who's responsible for that? You've got to start looking at the interlinkages between these different players that I need to pull together into in the sandpit. And what is the role of the space agency as an example? And I've seen many countries that assume that they're responsible for doing everything in the ecosystem, which is actually quite foolish. Um, you have to differentiate between your role and the role of other role players. Um, just some quick elements in terms of, um, you know, if you want to make the ecosystem fully functional, you know, we very often, and I think the problem or the challenge that you highlighted, David, in terms of what you're going to be doing different on Project Moonhut, very often we tend to play the zero-sum game. Now, there's one winner and there's one loser. But I think what we are playing in an ecosystem is a multi-sum game where everybody wins or everybody loses. I think yep. that's what you're trying to do with Project Moonlight. Correct. Everybody yep. walks away with a value of a future. Yes. And there's no sort of competitiveness against, you know, we've got to beat country X or we've got to beat country Y. It's let's work together uh, as a collective. And I think I mentioned that your your success is determined by the collective behavior rather than the goals that you just articulate. Um, and then you've got to dr drive a value system when, you, when you're looking at that multi-sum game, you know, respect, uh, trust and dignity, excellence, responsibility, teamwork, innovation, achievement, fairness. How do you bring all of those to play when you're bringing your team together? And that comes back to the, you know, the values and the, the culture that we've spoken about earlier on. But also, we talked about the systems, by the way. We'll come back to the systems. <laughs> uh, one of the reality checks is you could work with legacy systems. You do more of the same that you've done for the last 10 years and think that you can beat the crowd. But actually, that doesn't work because all you're doing is working harder. What you really need to do, and this is where systems really cut to the core, is work smarter. Um, and by the way, there's this metamorphosis that happens, you know, with a caterpillar. Yeah. It's working quite hard. And there's a metamorphosis that happens. It becomes a butterfly, much more efficient, much more beautiful, working smarter. Well, um, that's a perspective of the butterfly. The caterpillar well, might have yeah, thought, yeah. you know, look at, look yeah. at my legs. You know, I got a lot of legs. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you got to, there's a perspective. You got to be careful. No, absolutely. You yeah. just insulted the caterpillars. Well, look, you can't become a butterfly without being a caterpillar, right? So you got to start somewhere. <laughs> but you don't want to stay a caterpillar all your life, right? <laughs> I, 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 again, I'm, you're stepping into what I don't know if a lawsuit's coming from some caterpillars. You just <laughs> violated that. You believe the caterpillars are inferior uh that they become beautiful and they're not <laughs> <laughs> but they both serve a purpose at some point well, they, yeah they both serve a purpose they both uh, it, it's I, i'm again i'm joking with you it's one of those things that it's very difficult to be able to articulate what is that that's why when we were well it's very difficult to articulate what is a better what is better so some people think better is more economic growth. And yeah. yet we have seen that some of the happiest people on the planet have nothing. 
we have said, well, it's it's more community, but sometimes more community ends up with more conflict. There is no one answer to everything. And that's why our final statement is to improve life on earth for all species. It is not to say which what is better life, because we don't know that. But our objective is to improve life on earth for all species and climate change, mass extinction, resource, um, explosive impact, displacement, unrest, and uh, explosive, uh, explosive, God, I can't remember the word now. Uh, They, those will influence what tomorrow will be. And when we look at the, the happiness index. Yes. Uh, when your life, and this is my take, this is just my opinion. If your life is looking at a TikTok at a, a, at a screen and telling yeah. everybody how great you are, that's not, we're designed for more. We're yeah. designed for more. And it's not to say that someone they're doing is bad, but maybe we need something else that's a little bit bigger to live for. And I yeah. think that the, the, we're working on that. Uh, Val, I've, I've got to say, this is, I, I like all the interviews, brilliant. You were here, you were present. I absolutely loved that. I do love the two and a half hours we had prior because we really got to know each other. And that's part of the value of this process. Right. And I appreciate the connections you've given us so that we can bring other individuals into the fold and they're going to be doing podcasts too. So you have been absolutely fan- fabulous. So thank you. Great. Thank you. No, thank you, David. Thank you so much. And, I really appreciate and enjoy the conversation. And I'm going to send you $25 for all the advertising that you've done for paid to thank. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, at the, I, I have sent, we have sent out so many books. We have sent out so many of the, the free PDFs or the Kindle reader versions. Our real right. desire of writing that book for 12 years, for 10 years, uh, was 12 yeah. years actually was to just improve how we look at the world and how we can be better at what we are doing. And I appreciate once again, all of those comments because you're reaffirming that the work we did was valuable because it, you don't get paid for 12 years. You yeah, make yeah, money, absolutely. but that's not the value. So yeah, uh, exactly. I, wanna, I wanna thank you. And I, I wanna thank everybody who's been listening to take, for taking the time out of your day to listen in. I do hope that you too learn something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Uh, the Project Moonhot Foundation, you've heard many times today, which is fantastic, is we're looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a home. That's what it stands for, a box with a roof and a door. We're not about colonization or settlement. Those are bad words all over the world. So we want to establish a home on the moon and then create this new Mirth ecosystem through the accelerated development of the uh, Mirth ecosystem that we will take those innovations, the paradigm shifting, the endeavors, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. And thank you, Val. You are amazing. Is there one single best way that individuals who would like to can get a hold of you? Yes, David. Um... So I can give you my email. I, I didn't mention to you that I'll be stepping down end of next month. You mentioned um, that to me on the two and a half hour call. You didn't mention to this. So you are stepping down in next month. Yes. That's right. Yes. Um, so I can give you my personal email. It's Val Monsami. So it's V-A-L-M-U-N-S-A-M-I at yahoo.com. 
yahoo.com. So for me, if anybody's interested in connecting, I'd love to connect with you. You could reach me at david at moonhut.org. You can connect with us on Twitter at, at Project Moonhut, me personally at, at Goldsmith. We're on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram. We do have, we're Project Moonhut there, and also Mr. David Goldsmith. So there's multiple ways you can get a hold of me if you're interested in talking. And that said, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.